This is the LSC Review of Books podcast. Welcome to the final instalment of our series on Brazil. I'm Amy Mollick. In the last two episodes, we explored the big issues facing Rio today as it transitions into a global city. Now we head inland to the heart of the country's political life, the capital of Brasilia. Brazil emerged out of a violent military dictatorship in 1985. But how quickly things can change. Duma Rousseff, a former guerrilla fighter during that time, is now president of Brazil. Latin America's largest democracy. Viva a trabalhadora e o trabalhador brasileiros. Viva o Brasil. Rousseff continues the leftist traditions of her predecessor, Luiz Inécio Lula da Silva, or simply known as Lula, who was once called the most popular politician on earth. He was sort of euphemistically known as the father of the poor in Brazil. But the Brazil of Lula's day, and even the Brazil of the 2011 election, which saw Rousseff rise to power, is very different to the Brazil we see today. Riots in response to police brutality and subpar public services plagued the country. Those demonstrations, those protests, were expression of this uneasiness with uh, the urban conditions. Now that Brazil is trying to forge on after a humiliating end to the World Cup Games, we'll leave the issue of mega-events aside and delve further into the country's political and economic life. We'll also note some positive achievements along the way. First up, we hear from LSE's own Francisco Panizza and former advisor to President Lula, André Vitor Sinja. Sherwood Bromley has more. kind of a new thing which is not exactly from the right or from the left. André Vitor Singer is professor of political science at the University of São Paulo. He also wrote for a prominent Brazilian daily as a journalist, until one day he got a call from Lula, the newly elected president of Brazil. He asked him to serve as his press secretary. In André Singer's new book, The Meanings of Lulismo, he uses his insider knowledge to reflect on Lula's political prowess, particularly his ability of drawing from a wide support base. Lula was never formally educated and worked menial jobs until he got his start in politics through workers' unions. He moved up in the ranks and eventually established Brazil's Workers' Party. In 2002, when Brazil was barely even two decades out of military dictatorship, he was elected the country's 35th president. To Singer, Lulismo marked a departure from politics as usual. He mixed different types of politics, which uh, resulted in something that nobody expected. Throughout his term, he fused pro-business policies with wide-sweeping social programs. He often joked that a metal worker with a socialist background had to become president of Brazil to make capitalism work. In his two terms, Lula grew to not only be the most popular leader in Brazil, but one of the most popular leaders of all time. His approval rating remained high throughout his two terms. Even as he left office, it stood at 77%. Although Lula wasn't far left, his rise to power is similar to other left-leaning leaders in South America, 
Leaders from very humble beginnings, who through unions or revolutionary movements, grew into political powerhouses, infamously the late Hugo Chavez of Venezuela, and Bolivian President Evo Morales. People like Evo Morales or, or Lula signify a, an enormous change in terms of the traditional political elite of their countries, which have been tra- normally uh, uh, dominated by very narrow socioeconomic class or, socioeconomic or political elite. These are people that are clearly outsiders to this sort of mainstream political elite. That's Francisco Panizza, Associate Professor in Latin American Politics at the LSE. In his book, Contemporary Latin America, Development and Democracy Beyond the Washington Consensus, he looks at the ideological shifts in the region, starting from the mid-1980s with neoliberalism to the emergence of populism. Through to the 1990s in Latin America, a long-standing recession was threatening the region's nascent democracies, so the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and the U.S. Treasury intervened to put them on a more sustainable growth pattern, advocating free market principles. Partly for conviction, and I think in to a considerable extent for very pragmatic reasons, um, the governments of the day uh, introduced in some cases very, very quickly and very radically transformations in the economy, open up their economies and created this kind of uh, free market framework for economic policy in the early 1990s. That were the origins of the Washington Consensus, of course, uh, referring to the dominant ideas of the IMF, the World Bank and the U.S. Treasury at the time. And presidents across Latin America had likewise adopted neoliberal free market policies. But after 10 years of this so-called Washington Consensus, it was clear that it couldn't live up to its promises of economic growth and greater equality. By the year 2000, the number of people living in poverty in Latin America was greater in, in both absolute and in relative numbers than in 1980s, so uh, more than 20 years earlier. Um, whether this was the fault of the policies or that these policies have not been consistently applied or there were very complex factors, this is another discussion. Out of this dissatisfaction came new leadership, which shifted away from neoliberalism. The Lula and Morales governments gave a voice to sectors of society that didn't feel represented, and they redistributed income to these groups. So in essence, Penisa feels this actually widened democratic participation in Brazil and Bolivia. To Penisa, following the military dictatorship, democracy had shown a resilience in Brazil, which has kept it thriving amidst so many ideological shifts. For the first 10 years of this um, new democracy of the new republic in Brazil, uh, the economic situation was terrible and put enormous strains in the political system. However, the political system in Brazil was able to to, to solve these questions and to uh, change the economic outlook. And then uh, later you have this another change to government of, of the PT and Lula, which um, in the 1990s were considered a sort of a danger to democracy or to capitalism and to both. And again, the political system in Brazil was able to process this turn to the left. Brazil now is, is a very robust democracy. A robust democracy it may be, but regular rioting in Brazil, which started in 2013, have shown rumblings of discontent. Here's André Singer again. Living in the, the big cities, uh, in the big Brazilian cities nowadays is very difficult. 
you have a kind of uh, malaise, I would say, uh, in the cities. And the riots were, uh, I wouldn't call riots exactly, I would say those demonstrations, those protests, were expression of this, you know, uneasiness with uh, the urban conditions. Panitza sees that positive changes in social development also has unexpected consequences. Well, if we look at Brazil, um, there were millions of people that have been lifted from poverty and millions of people that have lifted from the working class to, if you want, the middle classes. Uh, but these new social sectors in Brazil, they have their own demands and expectations that are not being fulfilled by the state. And also, they are much more educated and critical of questions that more or less have been given for granted in Brazil, for instance, waste of public money and corruption, etc. So it's, in a certain way, this, this satisfaction is the victim of, of some of the successes of the post-Washington consensus, but also of its limitations. That was Francisco Panizza and Andre Vitor Singer. Now we're going to pick up on that point that Panizza left us with. Those millions lifted out of poverty in Brazil. A large part of this mass upward mobilisation was due to cash transfers. The Brazilian government gave money to the poorest households in the country to break the cycle of poverty. The programme lives on today. It's called Bolsa Familia and it expanded significantly under the Lula government. Bolsa Familia has been universally lauded by development multinationals and emulated by many other countries. But Anthony Hall, Professor of Social Policy at the LSE, wonders if its effectiveness will wear off in the long term. There's no such thing as an apolitical development programme. All programmes have political objectives one way or another. And um, it's probably true to say that it wasn't originally conceived as having a particularly significant political objective, at least overt, but it's inescapable really the fact that growing support for the Bolsa Familia program under Lula certainly did nothing to harm his electoral chances and it was one of the major factors responsible for his re-election in 2006. Hall is an expert on Brazilian social policy and in a recent journal article he says that Lula expanded the Bolsa Familia program not just because it was successful, but because it made him popular. Lula was very crafty as a political animal, and he used all his uh, oratorial skills and uh, populist appeal to cast the Bolsa Familia as his sort of personal gift to the Brazilian poor. He was sort of euphemistically known as the father of the poor in Brazil. They expanded the programme, for example, quite significantly shortly before the 2006 elections. And research shows um, that there is a strong correlation between an increase in political support for Lula in certain areas of the country, particularly the poor in north and northeast of Brazil, and the expansion of the Borsa Familia programme. Bolsa Familia started at the local levels of government in the 1990s in Sao Paulo and Brasilia. It is a conditional cash transfer programme, 
meaning if families meet certain conditions, like a minimum of school attendance and vaccinations for their children, then they will be given a small monthly stipend. President Fernando Enrique Cardoza then expanded it into a national program, bringing together education, nutrition and fuel into one program under the Bolsa Familia name. Today, Bolsa Familia absorbs uh, around 13 million families. That's about 50 million people altogether, or one quarter of Brazil's total population, uh, and a large proportion of the number of absolute poor. So it has a a significant uh, reach, shall we say, and general impact. And along with Mexico, it's considered one of the two leading conditional cash transfer programs in in Latin America and, and the world, indeed. Although looked up to around the world, the World Bank and others are replicating this model in other countries, it is still highly contentious in Brazil. Despite it being a relatively cheap initiative, it requires only a spending of 0.04% of the GDP, many middle-class Brazilians feel it is unfair, even if there are conditions attached. In a recent article, Hall also points out that a past dependency may have developed amongst Bolsa Familia's grantees. The poor now in a way, see themselves as more closely linked to government and they feel that they have the ability to place more demands on government so that the Bolsa Familia and the, the, the benefits that it brings is, is increasingly seen as a kind of entitlement rather than as a simple one-off gift. That's where the big challenge lies in the future. How do you maintain not just demand, but how do you maintain the supply of services and the quality of services to make sure that there are real improvements in the long term. Antonio Clarea, who is the Secretary of State for Social Assistance and Human Rights in Rio, disagrees with Hall. He thinks that long-term objectives are the building block of Bolsa Familia and that the programme has done much to break the intergenerational cycle of poverty. The cash transfer itself has an, a, a, a positive impact in the long term. If a family can have better uh, conditions to, uh, to raise their children in terms of, of nutrition, in terms of access to educational goods, it will be, it will be very important for, for them at the long term. Uh, I, I hear a lot of stories in my everyday work of people saying that if they don't have this kind of cash transfer, uh, their kids would not be able to, to continue studying. They would be forced to go to the labor market to, to have an a, a, a income, to complement the family income. So when we combine the cash transfers with incentives to conclusion of, uh, of education, of, of formal education, and then uh, keeping, uh, in, uh, integrating this with job and training opportunities, uh, with uh, uh, microcredit uh, opportunities and other kind of, of, of policies uh, that uh, pro- promotes uh, economic inclusion. Amanda Simoes, who works at the Ministry of Social Development and for Fight Against Hunger in Brasilia, also thinks that Bolsa Familia helps rather than hinders service improvement. It's, it's not true that actually cash transfer policy in Brazil is a substitute for the social policies. On the contrary, it's a way to, f- to target policies better than if you didn't have the, the, the identification of all these families in the country, that actually now, because of Bolsa Familia, we know where the, the poor population live. 
lives in the country and where you can find them, where you can concentrate your resources in terms of promoting progress and development among these families. Simoes also feels that people in Brazil are in opposition to Bolsa Familia partly because of their misconceptions of poverty. Mass poverty, as we used to have in Brazil, is not because the lack of willingness from the part of the poor to work on to improve their own lives. is the structural problem of distribution of resources in society. And I think what this government has been doing since 2003 is actually to redistribute resources to try actually to promote people at a minimum level that actually they can help themselves. I say that the right to education actually would, would depend on another right, that is the right of a minimum income that families may, should have in order to uh, be able to promote their children's education. Without that, I don't think we will make the, the next step. stands by the faults he finds in the Bolsa Familia program. For him, the 2013 and 2014 demonstrations show that Brazilians are deeply dissatisfied with the state of public services in the country. And there's also a perception, of course, that you know there's huge corruption which underpins the whole government system of patronage. Uh, and you back that up with what's seen as wasteful expenditure on things like uh, the World Cup, for example, and um, renovating airports when... You know, clearly, uh, a lot of that money could be more productively used, productively in the wider sense of the word, to uh, boost spending on services. It comes as no surprise to Hall that despite Bolsa Familia's faults and the protests, President Duma Rousseff continues to support and expand the programme. He thinks, paradoxically, these same faults cement its future. I think in one form or another it's going to exist, partly because the political demand, if you like, is so strong that a politician who was adventurous enough to say that we are considering doing away with Borsa Familia is more or less committing political suicide. No one, no politician on whichever end of the spectrum is ever going to say that simply because the expectations are so high. LSE's Anthony Hall, Antonio Clarea and Armando Simoes. We'll be right back. Se você quer grilho tem, se quiser rio tem, e se quiser também, até cabana tem, uma lareira tem, um violão também, um passarinho tem. Mas se você quiser morar na pele bem, um automóvel tem, cabeleireiro tem, e vira gente bem, Copacabana tem, Piriba noite tem, e quando a lua vem, jantar no iate bem. listening to the LSE Review of Books podcast and so far we've explored the rise of President Lula and Bolsa Familia. Now we look towards Brazil's future. 
recent visitors to Brazil may be familiar with the ever-present oil platforms that dot the country's coastline. In the next 10 years, Brazil hopes to produce 4.7 million barrels of oil a day, numbers on par with its neighbour, Venezuela. Meanwhile, oil-rich countries around the world, although wealthy, face serious issues like corruption, embezzlement and patronage. Something for Brazil to think about. But is the so-called oil curse real? Two economists at the LSE think Brazil holds the answer. Cheryl Bromley picks up our final story from here. that discover oil in their subsoil or off their coast rejoice or mourn. That's what LSE economists Francesco Caselli and Guy Michaels asked in their academic paper on oil in Brazil. There is a problem that economists run into when trying to establish the validity of the oil curse. That is, cross-country comparisons with all their potential variations can't establish causality. For example, it's hard to single out oil as the sole source for corruption ahead of other factors like the strength of a country's political institutions or its historical cultural practices. But to answer this age-old question, Caselli and Michaels turned to Brazil because it presents a way around this problem. Here's Francesco Caselli. Brazil is a significant oil producer in the world, and uh, what is attractive about Brazil for a study like this is that it presents a lot of uh, geographic uh, variation in the distribution of oil fields. Oil fields are positioned across Brazil's many municipalities, and these municipalities then go on to keep their profits. Municipalities are very close to each other, very, very similar, except that um, some just happen to get the oil money, and that, as Francesco said, allows us to get, I think, much closer to um, finding out the causal effect of these um, oil windfalls. That was Guy Michael speaking. There were other advantages, too. It has very good data, which is not uh, given, uh, especially in the middle-income and, uh, and, and lower-middle-income lower, lower middle income countries. And so there is a wealth of performance indicators that we can uh, look at uh, in terms of uh, what does having oil uh, do to them. What they found was that oil doesn't increase living standards, and it may even have a more sinister effect on communities. Unfortunately, there is very little benefit to the local population. There may be some marginal improvements in health and education, but on a variety of other dimensions, including infrastructure, including uh, sanitation, including um, transfer to the, popula- to the population, including poverty, uh, we see uh, very, very little, uh, if any, action. Uh, in fact, in some uh, indicators of uh, living standards, the things actually ha- uh, appear to worsen uh, following oil discoveries. What's more is that rather than being thriving, bustling hubs, these oil-producing municipalities appear to be, well, stagnant. We, sh- we show that population doesn't flock to municipalities that have uh, large oil discoveries. And that's very important because since our, f- our finding is that per person, living standards don't improve, you may worry that that's because so many people come to these municipalities that they dilute the benefits of of the oil. 
the fact that we document that population doesn't go to these municipalities not only disproves this concern about dilution of the benefits, but also it's an independent indication that even people who live in other municipalities surrounding the ones receiving the oil don't particularly perceive that uh, life in those municipalities is improved. I think Brazil is a very important case to be studied. That's, I believe, the reason why Cassel and Michaels are interested in Brazil, because Brazil has a very rich federative structure that allows to study the impact of such oil revenues and other kind of revenues as well. That's Fernando Pastale. He and his colleague Marisai Nishijima are economists at the University of Sao Paulo. They have also looked into the effects of oil on living standards in the country and have cited Caselli and Michaels in their research. They contend that oil, thought once to be Brazil's future cash cow, won't actually live up to the hype. Recently, Marsk Oil wrote off $1.7 billion from its pre-salt assets in Brazil. Pre-salt is oil buried deep in the sea, and it comes as a huge risk to investors. Personally, I'm very skeptical about pre-salt because I think pre-salt is not a lottery, it's not a, a big wealth as people are trying to, to say. Uh, because we have uh, uh, an economic risk, we have a market risk, and we also have a technological risk. So far we've heard about bad investments, patronage, missing cash and corruption. But does oil really have to be bad news? Caselli says that better governance would help countries avoid these pitfalls. Uh, having given much more publicity, to these, uh, uh, to these revenues uh, would, uh, m- might help uh, with increased accountability, with, uh, might allow voters to uh, punish uh, mayors who do not translate these revenues into public goods and services. Um, and so it might lead to a better functioning of the democratic uh, mechanism uh, itself. But I think um, it also points the analysis to um, the absurdity of, of a system which concentrates these royalties uh, on, a, on the basis of pure geographical location vis-à-vis uh, oil fields that can be many, many miles offshore. Uh, and so I think it also points to the need uh, to uh, dis- disperse these revenues more equally across municipalities, which is, I think, something that the uh, Brazilian uh, uh, Congress is, is trying to, to achieve. So Cazan and Michael's paper is a good example of how inequality affects governmental management and political decisions. Controlling local... Marcos Mendes is an economist and consultant for the Federal Senate in Brazil. He thinks the longer municipalities receive these oil windfalls, the more entrenched corruption and inequality will become. What Cazella and Michael show is that oil windfalls foster this behavior because they give more money to those local elites to spend in this way. So that's the idea why inequality may distort the use of government and the use of public money. There are signals that the Brazilian government is learning from its mistakes. It has passed recent legislation which has designated future pre-salt oil revenues for education and health services. Here's Maristai Nishijima and Fernando Pistoli. There are now uh, little restrictions to use this resource, 
and this widen the scope that a new investment that could be done with this resource. I think this is important. Personally, I, I agree with the new rules. I think that uh, they should be distributed more evenly across Brazilian states and municipalities because the previous law was created under very heavy lobby from some states. They could uh, uh, take advantage of uh, the new revenues. But I think it's time to other states and municipalities also enjoy such rents. But Mendes is unsure whether Brazil will be able to manage the influx of funds sustainably. Up to now, politicians have spent all their time debating on how to divide the money among federal, state and municipal governments. And they paid very little attention to planning how to use the money in an efficient way and how to save and invest in favor of future generations. So the risk of becoming a new Venezuela is not negligible. For the LSE Review Books Podcast, I'm Cheryl Brumley. That's all for this episode and for this series on Brazil, brought to you by the LSE Review of Books. We hope that you enjoyed exploring topical issues in the country. Many thanks to our LSE academics and researchers who made this podcast possible. Our intro and outro music came courtesy of Groove Gravy Records from their Brazil Remix album. For a complete list of other music and sound used in this podcast, and for book reviews on the social sciences, visit our website at lscreviewofbooks.com. Cheryl Brumley produced this podcast, and I'm Amy Mollett. Until next time! <laughs>